This podcast is brought to you by our patrons. To help support the show, visit patreon.com slash haveadrinkshow. This is your beer, liquor, and other beverage news for the week of January 5th, 2019. The Brewers Association is handing out grant money. How do I sign up? Miller Coors sells brewing facility. Gotta be cramped with all that paps they're making. The year of non-alcoholic beer. You animals! And this week in Aldi is back. All this and more on Have a Drink News. Welcome to Have a Drink News, the show where we cover the week's popular news about what you drink. I'm Brittany Lee Walker. I'm Justin Frazier. I'm Christopher Walker. And I'm Casey Price. First up this week from BrewBound, Brewers Association awards more than $500,000 in research grants. The Brewers Association has awarded more than a half a million dollars in research grants to groups focused on barley and hops development. In a press release, the Brewers Association, a not-for-profit trade group representing the interest of small and independent U.S. beer companies, said that 17 grants were given through its Research and Service Grants program, totaling $509,058, and would further the v- development of a healthy and sustainable raw materials supply chain. Bob hey. Pease, CEO and president of the Brewers Association, added in a release that a healthy supply chain is critical for the trade group members. As the agricultural landscape and landscape weathers a number of challenges, the Brewers Association is proud to fund grants that will embrace beer production and enable a more sustainable future. Since the Brewers Association instituted the Research and Service Grants pro- program in 2015, the organization has provided more than $1.7 million in funding to 77 product projects, which include barley and hop variety development and a study of hop disease and hop aroma. Grants also supported National and State Growers Association. Among the 2019 funding recipients, you will find the University of Nebraska for its Building a Winter Malting Barley Market for the Great Plains, a Montana State University's study of interaction between barley genetics and malt process impact on flavor, North Dakota State's University's identifying spring malting barley varieties for the craft brewing industry, and the University of Minnesota's mapping novel loci for powdery mildew resistance in hops. You will also find Montana State University receiving grant money for its study of stable and sustainable dry land production of high-quality malt barley. The Brewers Association also announced that we'll accept proposals for 2020 grants between March 1st and the end of May 2019. Well, there you go. There's your uh, when to sign up. Hmm. Yeah. It doesn't seem like a lot of money at first hearing, you know, like half a million when you think about all the, the you know, money that all of the brewers are probably making but still that's that's a substantial chunk of change for for research for this kind of stuff yeah it's it's kind of just um it's the only part of the money that's going to be used in the research because most of these were coming from universities yeah so it's just like a little boost to help them continue the research right uh yeah um from coming from that side the the whenever you get research dollars like this um if you were to get a grant for fifty thousand dollars usually it's to buy the equipment or to buy the supplies that you need the the 
manpower is already purchased usually by the university. So you're being paid because you're a professor there and you're doing research on your own. But it's the additional, you know, I've got a buddy who he wanted to study diabetes in fruit flies. So he had to buy a little fruit fly MRI machine in order to look at their little tiny bodies. And so that was where his grant money went whenever he got a, uh, when he was looking at a grant uh, most recently. Or, or that's where he would put it if he got the grant. I can't remember if he got it or not. A little but, uh, fruit but yeah, fly that was, MRI machine. I want to know, like, exact is it designed specifically for fruit flies or is it just like this tiny little, is it like an insect MRI? <laughs> Uh, that's a good question. I'm, I'm sure it's probably a, an insect MRI, but probably uses fruit flies most often. The reason being, fruit flies are not protected as far as uh, animal species go. So you can kill them and, and do whatever you want to with them in the government and, and all these boards that look at safety of animals and animal well-being and studies. They don't care. You can do whatever you want to a fruit fly. <laughs> Wait, so is that why I haven't been getting funding for my research? Just because I use uh, uh, endangered owls as the, as the test subjects? Could be. You don't even have to use endangered owls. You could use cats and you still have to, to go through a whole lot more red tape than if you use a fruit fly. Look, those cats deserve the testing I'm giving them. <laughs> it better be testing which treats they like best. <laughs> I mean, maybe some of them have grown grown weary of living. Uh... Well, you know what won't usually give you diabetes? Club soda. Yeah, that's true. But our next story is about uh, Miller Coors selling their uh, selling a facility. Apparently, uh, I just read the headline. <laughs> they are a doc and was expecting something different there. It's all right. That uh, we pulled this uh, from from Brewbound's uh, last call, some of like their their roundup sections, and one of the stories is about uh, mentions Club Soda. But uh, what we're talking about is uh, Miller Coors. Uh, nearly two months after settling with uh, Paps Brewing Company, they have sold the former Eden, North Carolina-based production facility for two point seven five million to Greensboro-based demolition and site development company. D.H. Griffin, according to Green, Greensboro News and Record. They had shuttered the 37-year-old facility back in 2016, uh, which it had acquired in 2008 for more than $53 million. So I don't know how good a return on investment that necessarily was for them. Well, I mean, versus what they were able to produce out of the facility in that time. Yeah, maybe. Uh, in 2016, the shutdown came, uh, shutdown of Eden came as Miller Coors was negotiating an extension of nearly two decades-old contract brewing arrangement with Paps, which was uh, slated to expire in 2020, although Paps held renewal options through 2030, which is something we have been talking about a little bit lately on the show. Uh, despite the renewal options, they have argued that it may not uh, have the brewing capacity required to extend the contract as its volumes have declined in recent years. Uh Due to those declines, the Chicago headquarters company says it had to close the Eden facility. Then came the lawsuits, which we have talked about, uh, with Paps claiming they were trying to sabotage them, uh, its ability to compete, and that Miller Coors would have enough capacity to brew nearly 4.5 million barrels that the company produces annually. Uh, during the trial, Paps CEO Eugene Casper testified that he... Uh, Cashper, rather, testified that he had attempted to buy the Eden facility for $100 million after Miller Coors announced its foreclosure, but Miller Coors countered with an offer of $750 million. Cashper declined, believing the counteroffer uh, was a closer to a price for a new facility. Uh, closer to a price for a new facility. 
he ultimately settled the lawsuit uh, in November this past year. But <laughs> yeah, so they sell it for two point seven five million, and they told uh, Paps, "Oh yeah, no, we'll sell it to you for seven hundred and fifty million. Yeah, that's kind of crap. <laughs> they could have taken the deal that Paps originally Pabst offered offered them, and it would have been much more money. They would have gotten more money and yeah. wouldn't have had to pay out. Yeah, you know, wouldn't have probably had to pay all the lawyer stuff they had to pay for. I know they have some of them on retainer, I'm sure, but still." Like, it just seems like they could have handled every part of this better. Yeah, the, it seems like the ball was dropped uh, every every step of the way by uh, Miller Coors on this one, and it's probably because it was all separate departments, none talking to the other. Yeah. But Pat's and just sitting there screaming into the ether, trying to... It's like, just let us brew! Yeah, they're... Oh, we'll buy the we'll buy the facility from you, so you have to you can stop contract brewing for us, and we can brew it ourselves. And they're like, "Nah, we'd rather lose money." <laughs> it. I feel like this got petty at some point, and they like literally it's just <laughs> watching them set money on fire and going, "No." <laughs> Someone's sitting there in the corner with a big fan, fanning themselves. You want shade? But you know, I guess at the end of the day, they can do with the property i guess what they wanted to do with it yeah but, even if it is not a sound business choice eh, i mean uh, i guess that could depend on your perspective perspective because like they didn't have a competitor get a new facility so you know there's that competitor who sued them and ended up winning and we don't know to what degree they won <laughs> Well, we know that they have to keep brewing. Oh, yeah. We know that Miller Corps is going to have to keep the contract alive. That dream we kept alive for Pabst. <laughs> but, yeah. All right. Well. well um, a good segue there. Speaking of non-alcoholic beer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> seems uh, to be a big thing. Well, so, maybe in the import area. Yeah, uh, we actually had a few of these stories getting shared in the Discord. If you're not already in there, you can join the Have a Drink Discord. But uh, if you've been following beer news for the first four days, well, six days now of the year, uh, you wouldn't be faulted for wondering if 2019 is the year that beer goes alcohol-free. The Italian brand Perone, now owned by Asai, uh, announced its first ever foray into non-alcoholic beer with Peroni Libera, or Libra? Libra. 0.0% uh, in the United Kingdom. Similarly, Heineken officially launched its much ballyhooed Heineken 0. Everyone's going with a 0.0, and it looks like a little ASCII face. It, I was going to say, it looks like a little face, like they just really shocked. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, saucer eyes, tiny mouth. Ooh. But that Heineken's going to be in the United States, and news broke that eve that Lefe a brand of Belgian Abbey Ale dating back to 1240 and now owned by Anheuser-Busch InBev would be releasing a zero-alcohol iteration of the brew in the coming months, which I feel like that is just absolute sacrilege. I read zero-alcohol iteration as uh, zero-alcohol tolerance, and I was like, wait, what? I mean, oh. <laughs> kind of works. Uh, with the concept of dry January, I don't know, this is huge now, apparently it's been a thing in the UK for a while, but uh, the US, it just blew up this year. Absolutely everybody's talking about dry January. Um, proving to be a hot topic, the timing of all these announcements probably isn't coincidental. 
Still last year, we also saw major brewers like Guinness and Budweiser expand their non-alcoholic beer offerings. Clearly, a lot of big names are banking on non-alcoholic beer, but why? Easy answer is that brewers are following the money. Many major breweries... The money, Lebowski. Yeah, many major breweries have seen sales stagnate or fall in recent years, but the sales of non-alcoholic beers continue to increase, especially in Europe. Uh, they have uh, They cite a... Reuters report in 2017 that from 2010 to 2015, the zero-alcohol beer segment in Europe saw sustained growth while the overall beer market shrank. So it's kind of like what we're seeing stateside here with, uh, well... Seltzer water? Yeah, the seltzer waters. Like, it's all exploding, and that is... You could almost say with the hard seltzers, like, those are in tandem cutting into beer sales. Because I do know, like, I see a lot of people now... At uh, gatherings, bringing and breaking out their sparkling waters. Well, I mean, sometimes you need to drink something other than than beer. Blasphemy. Heineken <laughs> cited these kinds of uh, stats with its initial 0.0 launch. You could expect uh, 10 to 15 years down the road, this would be more or less the global trend. That was from brand director Ditondo. Uh, that growth is primarily believed to be spawned by general switch towards healthier lifestyles, especially with younger people. And that applies not only to an interest and to an interest in drinking less alcohol, but other unhealthy beverages as well. As a result, brewers are hoping to position zero alcohol beer not only as a beer alternative, but potentially as an alternative to sodas. Hmm. Circling back to the money aspect, uh, another router's also pointed out uh, non-alcohol beer can be potential can potentially offer brewers higher margins because they are subject to lower taxes. Oh, yeah, that's actually probably a good good point. Yeah, in America, the non-alcoholic beer market is extremely small, accounting for just 0.3% of off-premise sales according to Brewbound, but the site also points out uh, that 30% of Americans don't drink alcohol. When you take into account that that overall U.S. beer sales dropped by about 1% in 2017, the biggest names in the industry are getting desperate for, for renewed growth. For the time being, the thought appears to be that the status quo won't cut it, instead catering to the health-conscious younger crowd and the untapped, non, uh -huh, untapped non-boozing market uh, appears to be one of the answers. So, I hope this doesn't become a trend for 2019. Well, I mean, they're they're ma they're saying non-alcoholic beer, which I think is a weird thing to chase after. If like I could see it to some some extent, but like if you're, you know, they get the stats like 30% of Americans don't drink alcohol. Yeah, and I bet among that 30%, not a lot of them want to drink beer even if it doesn't have alcohol in it or has yeah. almost none. Yeah, there's there I know of a scant few people, but it's for medical reasons that they can't drink beer. They right. wish they could drink regular beer. So, you know, to I guess kind of keep that dream alive, they drink an O'Doyles or, you know, whatever yeah. that's almost alcohol free. Right. Just uh, because some of us like the taste of malt and hops. It's true. But that doesn't give you that taste. No. No, not at all. Uh, so I think maybe by the middle of the year, uh, once we see some more of this stuff hitting U.S. shelves, maybe we can do a tasting episode of these alcohol-free beers. 
The next blind tasting we're doing, I need to sneak an O'Doul's into it. <laughs> We've got so many good just, blind tastings coming up at, the, at this point. Just, just us duck trying and going, what did you do? <laughs> I'm drinking urine, right? This is urine. <laughs> no, that's going to be the tasting after that. <laughs> the way it goes. That's the light beer. <laughs> well, um, speak, go from non-alcohol to... Rating the best alcohols, uh, a celebration right. of alcohol, if you will. Um, <laughs> we have our our next this week in Aldi. <sighs> so, uh, and I get the first listicle of the year. <laughs> uh, so first Aldi and first listicle. Yeah, I'm just knocking it out. Well, I think the biggest, the bigger thing here is all these beers are only found at Aldi. They are all, I guess, contract yeah. produced for Aldi only. And there's some interest, like all the labels are like distinct knockoffs, and it's hilarious. Yeah, the one definitely looks like a Heineken bottle. Um, <laughs> so this is every Aldi beer ranked, and it's ranked by a certified Cicerone. Sue. Um, Man, like, yeah, no, like these look like, yeah. I can see your Stella, I can see your Bex, I can see your Laguanitas. New Belgium. New Belgium. Uh, um, oh, what's... The other one, uh, I think, I see looks... land, there's a land shark there, but there's one. I'm trying to. We'll talk about it in a minute as yeah. we scroll down through this. <laughs> well, I think the one is supposed to be uh, bells. Uh, the the amber ale. Oh. I think it looks like a uh, kind of like a bells logo. No, maybe I don't know. Let's 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 talk about them though. Yeah. So I I I we've probably gone over this before but i must have totally forgotten but i didn't remember or realize that um aldi is a german-based uh company um and it says it's it's the less flashy cousin of trader joe's which sounds about right actually (laughs) um so they've developed a a big following for a lot of their brands and things like that but they've also been known of course for their own booze um they've got you know uh inexpensive wine um they've got the the gin um, and then, of course, they've got beers. Aldi's beer is remarkably cheap and robust in its offerings. But which beers belong in your fridge? So they enlisted the help of um, certified Cicerone Eric uh, Sadovnik and bar manager at LA's Art District Brewing to rank every beer a marathon blind taste test. Uh, he wasn't even familiar with the ever-expanding international grocer and found a lot to love among the 12 Aldi beers. So uh, he ranked them based on flavor, aroma, pairing possibilities, and general enjoyability. So, uh, of course, there is also a video to this, so that's, yeah. I, I don't know what that even involves. I haven't looked at it yet. But, um, so it's, it's a top 12. Um, I'm just going to go through, like, the basics first, and then we can kind of look at what stands out to us. Um, so number it starts at number 12. So number 12 is called Folded Mountains, and it's a pale ale at 5.3%. Uh, number 11 is Boot Tread Belgian Amber Ale, which is um, at 5% ABV. Uh, Independence Harbor at number 10 is an Amber Ale, 5.5%. Uh, number 9 is a is Monterey Cerveza, which I don't... Sure. Oh, well, yeah, that, that bottle looks straight up like it's trying to be Corona. <laughs> it looks like well, a the- Corona. Yeah, the exactly. name looks like Corona. The 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 marketing label stuff on it makes me think Landshark. Yeah, it's like a combination. It's that drink. Same you know? thing. Yeah, but um, that's definitely the goal here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, number eight, Holland, eighteen thirty nine. 
uh, which is a logger like a at five percent. Huh? Meant to look like a Heineken. Oh, yeah. that's that one. Yeah, yeah. That it straight up looks like Heineken. Uh, number seven, Brogel, uh, which is a Bach at again at five percent. Kind of noticing Mental. a theme on the ABV. Meant to look like Shiner Bach. Like Bach. That's what uh, I'm trying to think of. I was staring at that. Yeah. Like, that's something. It's got a German whatever. Yep. But. Uh, number six is Wild Range, an IPA at six point nine percent. So finally Mental. getting a little higher. Yeah, that one looks Mental. like the Lagunitas. Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't give it Lagunitas. I would give it. Um, Oh, who does Raging Bitch? Flying uh, Dog? Flying Dog? No, no. It's not got the, the, the weird animated thing. It's got the all-white label like a Lagunitas has. The font on the label on the top of the bottle looks like Lagunitas to me. And the, the, the with the black band around it and stuff. That's, yeah. yeah. Either way. It, it's clear what they're doing with these bottles. Is the point. <laughs> uh, number five is called Imperium. And it's another lager at 5% ABV. That uh, one looks like a Stella. It just needs like the, yeah. the white wrapper on top. Really, I think that look. It looks like it's trying to be something else, but I can't figure out what. Uh, See, the one next to it looks like it's trying to be Bex. Yeah. yeah oh, yeah, definitely. Which is, uh, would you say Bacher? I guess. Botcher. Sure. I'm not sure. It's B A C H E R, and it's Legal, another, legally distinct from Bex. Yeah. <laughs> Bacher. That's what they call, should call it. Uh, so that's another logger, five percent ABV. Uh, number three, Third Street Brewhouse Hoplift IPA. What is what do we think that is? <laughs> That's a can, and it it looks uh, just is, generic is it, generic uh, craft. It's supposed to look yeah. It's supposed it's to look, look like a crafty. yeah. Craft yeah. I'm like like just glancing over the because I was almost like is that supposed to be like Sierra Nevada's? Uh, but no, because it's not hazy or anything. All right, uh, number two is Kinru Blue, which. Uh, I can't think of what that looks. It's supposed to look like that bottle, Kona. but it's it's a Belgian white ale at five percent. That like I was Vista Blue Moon. That's their namesake, at least. Um, yeah, but I think the uh, the labeling looks like Kona, huh. with that Maybe, kind but, of shadowy Vista in the background. But it being blue, having blue in the name, and being a Belgian white, true. makes me think that they were going for that that Blue Moon crowd. Uh, and then, number one, number- I've got to say, is like a crash like someone put uh paul honor and warsh warsteiner like mashed yes. those yeah, both yeah. brands together and you would get this yeah because it's it's basically generic pilsner uh at 4.9 percent and it's called uh verna screwner um, it's like a vine stefana oh uh, yeah. that one yeah. yeah that's the other one so yes. it's it's insert generic um german pilsner import here it is <laughs> it is i do like um some of the descriptions that they were giving from from some of these, like it's because you get to kind of look down, like the the top one, the folded mountains. He's like, when asked what he'd pair it with, he said, "I'd give it to a neighbor who I didn't like." <laughs> <laughs> so clearly, that's why that one's at number twelve. <laughs> yeah. So it definitely it's ranked from worst to best. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and but. then, and I totally already read this. Okay, so it this was definitely a blind taste test. So he mm-hmm. had no idea about which one. So it's interesting, of course, like. I think they they're kind of in order of what like a like mainstream blind beer tasting would be. Like you've got the Pilsner at the top, you've got the Belgian White Ale after that, and then an IPA. Like it it kind of makes sense. So <laughs> idea, uh, we need to find out if we can get these in the U.S. and then see if we can get them in Aldi nearby. Then uh, no, the one in West Virginia has them. Well, we I need to check, get. I can check basically next door. We need to get a pack 
and we need to pair all of them with what they're clearly a ripoff of oh. and blindly see if we can tell the which one is which. Be like, oh, this is the ripoff. Basically, or, oh, this it, is... it's like the Pepsi versus Coke challenge. Yeah, we can take the Pepsi <laughs> challenge. With the, take with the Aldi challenge. The Aldi challenge. That well, would be interesting. Like, and then and then we can get some like cured meat, right? <laughs> sure. Uh, it looks like many of these if not i don't want to say most but many of these are brewed by uh fifco usa which is a brewer in rochester new york that does a lot of different brands so so they're mgp (laughs) what's that they're mgp (laughs) yeah pretty much um they do all the like seagram's uh, alco pops Huh. Or oh. So that's quite literally MGP. <laughs> no, that's where MGP does their distilling is the old Seagram's plant. Oh, okay, yeah. So, <laughs> so it close, is. Yeah. They do Labatt Blue. Uh, ah. Janice, or Genesee. Um, Magic Hat number nine. Oh, really? <laughs> All right. I yeah. thought that was ABM Bev, okay. Pyramid. Wow. Um, and then Honey Brown Lager, which is... Oh, Another yeah. one of those that kind of shows up as a generic yeah. um, beer. But yeah, um, Cream Ale. Literally, the the brand name is Cream Ale. Cream okay, Ale. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know what sure. you're talking about. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Huh. Yeah, we definitely have to try. Like, we haven't gotten on the, like, we have so many stories about Aldi, and we really need to tr- get on that train as far as, like, Well, like, not all the stuff it out. releases here so we gotta we gotta see what we can find yeah the, every now and then there'll be the stuff that's only in europe or whatever but we we've definitely got plenty of all the stores near us to to go test something out i think it just depends on which one of these has been caught for uh ip violation oh. uh, no. <laughs> i'm really surprised they haven't like it definitely has that legally distinct uh situation yeah, I do I wonder. The, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I guess the idea is that you'll never see the other brand on an Aldi shelf, so you can't get them confused that way. Oh, true uh, point. Or anywhere else. Yeah. Well, there, there is this Fifco or Fifeco USA makes another mm-hmm. beverage which I'm really interested in now. Um, it is a steel water spiked wa- uh, beverage flavored, four point five percent alcohol called Pura Still. Uh, comes in mango, blackberry, and mandarin orange, but it's Ooh. a still water instead of a sparkling water with alcohol and uh, flavoring. Hmm. I'm kind of interested. Yeah. Well, you know what I'm interested in? Bourbon. You know what? Me too. Always, yeah. <laughs> Tell me about bourbon. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Kentucky uh, distillers have scientifically emulated a century-old bottle of bourbon. Several years ago, while Marianne Eves was in the midst of renovating Castle and Key Distillery, one of the new up-and-comers right now. I was going to say, like a lot of good things being said about them. Yep. Um, Outside of Versailles, Kentucky, not Versailles, she came across an antique bottle of Old Taylor bourbon. The distillery grounds had originally belonged to Colonel Edmund Haynes Taylor Jr., known in in the whiskey world as E.H. Taylor with those distinctive $60 high bottles that uh, can't fit inside a normal whiskey shelf. Yeah, because <laughs> um, 
it, like everything Taylor did, it's got to be larger than life, so it's not going <laughs> to fit between shelves. Taylor was leading uh, in industrializing bourbon production during the earliest early early 20th century after taylor died in 1923 the distillery passed through several owners but eventually fell into neglect for 40 years the grounds became a tangle of foliage and the exterior of the buildings began to crumble then in 2015 eves who is the first female master distillery a master distiller of kentucky bourbon since mm. prohibition along with her business partners began to bring the distillery into the modern age of bourbon production but that antique bottle of Old Taylor, which was originally released in 1917, inspired Eves, whose background is in chemical engineering, did not know that, to use new technology to examine the bourbon's past. The most Man. dominant flavor in that 1917 bourbon was the butterscotch note, Eves says. That's something that bourbon aficionados and the dust hunters recognized about old historical Old Taylor bourbon that is this beautiful, rich, creamy, sweet butterscotch note. Mm -hmm. And the mouthfeel of that particular bottle was really unique for historical whiskey. That taste was something Eves wanted to incorporate into the Castle and Key bourbon, but she was at a dead end of sorts. While modern bourbon brands keep meticulous <laughs> notes on measurements and process, pre-prohibition brands don't do so much. Um, a lot were, more. I'm a lot more of a, you know what, screw it, toss it in there, we'll see what it does. Yeah, a lot of oral histories It's they write here. They were just going on flavor overall. Uh, they had these processes that had been handed down for hundreds of years. So they were doing things the way the guy before had done them, just knowing it would make alcohol. And in the, this case, good alcohol. So while she didn't know Taylor's exact processes, she did have both tradition and science on her side. Susan Riegler, a bourbon historian and biologist, explains that in order for a distillate to be considered bourbon, it must meet a few basic requirements. We all know those as the spirit has to be grain-based with the mash bill of 51% corn, must be aged in new charred oak barrels, must not be introduced into the barrel at higher than 125 proof, along with some other things in there like being made in the United States. Actually, Kentucky's better. Because of this, this process uh, had to still be basically the same, though, so the chemistry had to be about the same. Um, I have to imagine, when you think about like him passing down this oral tradition, like they go, all right, now we start adding in the malt. Now, I start adding in the barley. Now, you have to hold up one leg at a certain degree angle to make sure it goes in there <laughs> just right. What happens if you put it too low? whole thing burns. You did. <laughs> So they used a traditional method of figuring out how this bourbon was uh, was to be created. Gas chromatography. The, the traditional age-old method of gas chromatography. Sure. So <laughs> by using this, uh, this process, they were able to separate out the compounds inside of the, the beverage. So it should the also give him, they should also give him a rundown. It should give him like a rough idea of how much of each in there too, right? Uh, for the most part, so that's what I'm saying. Like it's, it's supposed to give him like like this got this here of X amount. It'll give you the base compounds. So what it'll yeah. do is it'll say this chemical compound or this individual ester or phenol will actually show up higher in at this level. And then you've got base levels that you can take a look at and say, okay, corn will give you these levels. So I know that because this spike is really high, it's got a lot of corn in it. <laughs> I'm just looking at the video right now. I don't, this is a picture of Chris just like <laughs> laying back and sultily, uh, you know, looking at me uh, kind of with those eyes. Just exhaustedly looking at me. <laughs> 
So they looked at the chemical compounds from there. They were able to figure out exactly what grains that they were using and found actually a yeast strain that had a similar flavor profile. So they went to construct the recipe based on it loosely. Um, they didn't want to really replicate what they were making exactly, or so they say, but take those flavors and cues from the past and then recreate them. So the bourbon has been distilled and is currently aging for a minimum of four years, although they probably will will look and see exactly how it moves over that time. Um, according to uh, people close to this, uh, many people still don't recognize all of the science and technology innovations that underpin the bourbon industry, from increasingly computerized distilling systems like what you see at Wild Turkey's distillery to spirit analytics like what was done here with the antique bourbons. So there are a lot more people in white coats that are involved with the bourbon industry, and they think it's very different from what E.H. Taylor would have been familiar with back in his day. <laughs> Just picture him walking out going, aren't you all drunk? <laughs> Come on, pour this in here. We'll get it done. No, that's that's pretty neat. And I, I, I kind of have to imagine they were trying to make this this an exact copy of it if they could, and then didn't quite exactly land it so they're like eh we're gonna keep trying it's gonna take a few years and you won't know for another uh for another four years exactly what that's like and then to be perfectly honest you would then have to age it age for it. another there are, 90 uh, years well, yeah, I was gonna say another hundred or so yeah but um castle and key how close are we to getting their first product like it's not that far off i feel like depends on depends on when my uh, new lock picks come in <laughs> When can you get in there? Um, yeah, so Castle and Key has been probably about two or three years in the market right now, but I know that they're probably waiting until that bourbon does reach the four-year mark. Um, you can get their vodka and their gin right now. Actually, the vodka, I've seen it on uh, our local shelves, so they're getting pretty good release. The hmm. cool thing about their vodka, though, is it actually comes in three different mash bills. It comes in um, extra... Uh, it comes in with 73 white corn 73 percent white corn 17 percent malted barley and then you switch it up so you can actually get uh 10 percent rye in there or 10 percent wheat in there so you can get a little rye toast or rye flavor to it a little wheat flavor to it or they also make a vodka flavored with 17 percent corn 63 percent rye and 20 percent malted barley so uh the, it's unrelated to this to some extent, but when you're mentioning th getting things in this area, I'm finally seeing Rogue's spirits getting distributed down to this way, and so I'm like, oh, I need to start buying some of this. I'm, it made me think because I saw like one of their vodkas, now I'm like, I'm curious about Castle and Key's vodka, and their gin, actually. So it's not expensive. From what I saw, it was like in the mid twenty dollar range for their vodka. So I could, I could use a new, I could use a new gin in front of the house. Yeah, I'd say they're just trying to get something out that's yeah get but, some cash flow, right? But you, you I don't imagine I, I, I don't want to think that they even just try to get a product out that they're not going to put out something that's still, you know, good. No, no, yeah, I'd say it's still great, but uh, I don't think we can associate that cost for what the bourbon's going to cost, considering the what's building around the bourbon that's going to come out of there. Yeah, um, with them having actually started, so they had their grand opening for the distillery in September of this year. Um, they had a lot of work on it. I don't know when they were distilling first. Um, it was definitely like less than 
from 2015. So it's less than three years, more than six months. So somewhere in there, I figure in the, probably the next two to three years, we're going to see some of their bourbon. We'll see rye come out before then, though, just because rye does better um, aging it a little bit younger. Mm. Okay. Uh, well, I wish I was younger, guys. You know why? Because you could go to college again. And get, get snacks delivered to me about robots. Look, we're not right. that far out of college, but I am very envious uh, of current college students. You say that, and I start counting the years, how long it's been since we've been out of college. Shh, and I'm like, shh let me be delusional. <laughs> yeah, I, I found a videotape today of my freshman year of college. Cool. Yeah, it's been a while. Oh, been a while. Yeah. Reminiscing back on my big chubby cheeks. Oh, Chris, I know, off topic. I did find a photo today of you in the band room in high school. Oh, gosh. <laughs> when you could see my cheeks? Yep. Uh, Ashley says you look better now. That breaks my heart, considering I'm probably going to shave next year. Or actually, this year. <laughs> well, it's all right. We can, we can think back to our glory days and be jealous that we didn't have drinks and snacks via autonomous drone delivery from Pepsi. No, uh, Pepsi is uh, partnering with uh, uh, Bay Area company Roby Technologies. Roby Technologies. I'm not sure what they're going for with that one. Uh, to deploy a fleet of self-driving robots onto the campus of the University of Pacific in Stockton, California. We are thrilled to welcome Snackbot to our campus, along with its convenient, nourishing options. Matt Camino. Excuse me, director of uh, e-commerce at the University of Pacific. Uh, this innovative technology from PepsiCo is enhancing campus life for our students and staff and faculty alike who've embraced this new way of snacking from Pepsi. I feel like if I say it that way, you can just you can just feel the TM in the air. I, I'm, yeah, I'm waiting for you to be like brought to you by Carl's Jr. And someone's like, "Why do you keep saying that? They pay me every time I do." Yes, do. Uh, the delivery bots, called snack bots, are stocked with Pepsi products like Smart Food Delight. Say this, sorry, I almost went into Rapper's Delight and I had to, I, I pulled back from the edge. <laughs> uh, baked Lay's, Sun Chips, Pure Leaf Tea, Bouble, uh, Life Runner. They're missing a lot of vowels in their their water word there, <laughs> uh, and Starbucks Cold Brew. Uh, apparently, they have a range of more than twenty miles in a single charge, which pretty good and pack a camera with headlights that enable them to to navigate autonomously in darkness or inclement weather plus all-wheel drive capabilities for handling steep hills man these sound like just like fun to see moving around anyway like, oh, oh yeah and it's a mobile uh, mobile snack machine you just need a baseball bat and to be pretty quick on your feet and you can catch one <laughs> and it's all kinds of free snacks <laughs> get back here yeah because they look like little coolers you would just basically be setting up a uh, a trap, like just digging ditches. Like if you know you live near a college campus and you're between <laughs> one of the stations of these things, you just dig a trench through your yard, and as they come rolling through, they're just like poof, poof, piling into it, and you go through. Oh, gonna go get the night's hall. When when the apocalypse comes, like the zombie apocalypse breaks out, like the first two days where people are like destroying these things in that campus, like no, I have snacks, we must flee. <laughs> Oh. Uh, 
But yeah, the anyway, Peckish students can place orders with an ordering app for iOS between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m., then designate a delivery area, one of 50 across the college's 175-acre campus. Uh, and they, someone from Pepsi says, we're thrilled to launch our Hello Goodness autonom- Autonomous Delivery snack bots and reimagine college snacking for the future. Uh, Pepsi has a unique opportunity to better serve today's ambitious college students by joining with the power of Hello Goodness portfolio with our expertise in design and equipment innovation. Hmm. Uh, they come hot on the heels of Serve, a robot uh, designed in-house by Postmates X Lab. Serve, like Snackbot, can autonomously navigate sidewalks and city streets and carry up to 50 pounds for 25 miles on a charge. A lot of snacks. Yeah, fifty pounds of snackage. Mm-hmm. Mm, it's a lot of Pepsi. well, no, they don't have Doritos. A lot of sun chips. Yeah, Pepsi and Postmates are far from being the only firms attempting to uh, nab a slice of the lucrative autonomous delivery market, which is uh, well-funded startups like Marble, Starship Technologies, Boxbot, Dispatch, and Robbie, to name a few. Indeed, McKinsey's Institute forecasts that driverless rovers like Serve will make up eighty-five percent of last-mile deliveries by twenty twenty-five. That's that's an ambitious to, number. Yeah, that's weird to think about. Now I'm just picturing that scene from Logan with like the 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 self-driving like you know uh, long haul. Oh trucks. yeah. And now I'm just picturing like it was just taking over to the side. I was like, ah, it's theirs now. We we must walk in the road. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, seems pretty neat. The I, I wish. I wish I could see robots delivering me snacks, but I would probably just abuse such power. I don't think that this is likely to be sustainable. Uh, the program might get off the ground for a few months, but uh, as I am, I am predicting, people are going to be attacking these things when they are mid-transit. <laughs> <laughs> Comical slingshot uh uh, like giant slingshots built into the ground, they're just launching them across the the, the field to hit it. Like, boom! Quick, it's down! Steal! It'll be like Wiley e. Coyote stuff. Uh, you're gonna like see them like laying out little little. Look, it's a charging station for you. And as they go in there, they just knock it over and start stealing everything out of it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, there is an obvious transition for this one, but I'm just gonna jump past it. And we're going to go ahead and just ask everyone, how, how was your New Year's? Well, all of us were together. and uh, <laughs> You know. You were there. I mean, some I of us. shaved a man. <laughs> some, uh, yeah, Justin shaved a man live on the internet. Some of us were the man that Justin shaved live on the internet. Some of us have an itchy chest. <laughs> <laughs> but you can, uh, you'll get to listen to that soon as... Uh, our producer is working very hard to get all of that stuff edited because, believe me, all that stuff needs heavily edited to get that out. Uh, you can see the video, though, on uh, on our Twitch page. But uh, apparently one man uh, had a very rough New Year's Eve. Uh, very much surprising, a Wisconsin homeowner who was in for a treat when she woke up and found a drunken stranger sleeping on a dog bed next to her 150-pound Mastiff. Uh, (laughs) According to Waukesha Police, an unknown man entered an unlocked home 
again, that's it, the, she just left the door unlocked and he let himself on in. On Cardinal Drive around 5.20 a.m. Tuesday, that would have been uh, New Year's Day, the homeowner, uh, Lynn Sarver, called 911 to report that the stranger was sleeping on her dog's bed in the living room and may have entered through an unlocked side door. He was Always pa- lock your doors. Yeah. Your dogs will have cuddle buddies. <laughs> I feel like this would have been me in the situation, just like cuddling with someone else's dog. Uh, he was passed out on the dog bed, and they woke him up, and he was cooperative and apologetic. He did. He didn't do anything wrong, really, other than go into the wrong house. Police made contact with the man who was heavily intoxicated after celebrating New Year's Eve. According to police reports, he accidentally entered the wrong residence and fell asleep next to the wrong dog. So, I mean, he wasn't like, what's this dog doing in my house? He was just like, no, come here, dog. (laughs) I have to imagine that he, he just like wakes up. My dog's smaller than this. What's going on? <laughs> like, uh, the man was returned to his home where he lives with his mom. No complaint was filed. <laughs> uh, you know, is the he lives with his mom part not shocking? Yeah. Uh, no, no. Maybe. That could be a revelation, but. Lives with his mom and her dog. And her 150-pound mastiff. <laughs> I don't know that. That's a that's a big buddy to cuddle next to. I mean, some of us like a big cuddle buddy. I mean, some I of us like a bear. With it. It's just you know, if he wakes up and is like uncomfortable with what's going on, I bet you he'd wake up sooner. Yeah. So, uh, well, we've had one. Uh... One means of getting your snacks uh, delivered to you already this episode, but uh, there is a new way to get your beer delivered, at least to, after reading the article, trying to figure out who, what this team was, and I was like, I've never we heard have, of them. And then it's we, like, we oh. realized we have a, a shocking lack of knowledge about NBA basketball. Yeah, I was just like, well, it's got to be from some, like, off branch of whatever... <laughs> Whatever area, and sure enough, it's like, why would I have ever heard of them? And then we went through this whole mess of figuring out. But anyway, beer is an essential part of sports spectatorship, but oftentimes long lines threaten uh, attendees' enjoyment of the game. Lucky for Bucks fans, and that's what said, we're like, who the hell are the Bucks? And I, I leave. They're in Milwaukee. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Fisser Forum uh, has a new option for ordering beers, doesn't require leaving your seat. A beer button. The Coors Light beer button is a new feature in the Bucks uh, and the forum app that allows gamegoers to order beer with the tap of an in-app button. Quotes on the button. It's not a real button. It's it's a digital screen button. It's a virtual button. <laughs> it's still a button. I don't think it deserves the quotes. Not only do well, fans... like If it was a big button right in front of your seat that you just slam it and it says, bring me beer. That's what it should be. They could just order a crap ton of the easy buttons from Staples. You hit it and it goes, (laughs) you know, here comes an air cannon out where they shoot you. Yeah, it's the the t-shirt cannon loaded with beers. It's like, cans of of beer at high velocities (laughs) into the crowd. That way people can just throw up their small children to catch the beers before they reach their intended intended <laughs> recipient stealing Little the Johnny, beer. Catch. <laughs> oh! 
Not only do fans not have to leave their seats, they are in fact required to stay put so the beer can be delivered. Beer button options uh, are slim and steep Coors Light or Miller Light. We have both kinds. Uh, run $10 a piece, and that's not oh. as bad as at a lot of different stadiums and sports events. That's true. Uh, according to Sports Illustrated, one can only purchase two at a time. So you can only drop <laughs> a, you can drop a Twinsky to get uh, two beers. You there. Bring me both. Why? I need a double fist. <laughs> But rest assured, you'll never have to miss a dribble, even though you will be a little. Uh, the button launched last Saturday, December 29th, when the Bucks versus the Nets on Milwaukee Reports. According to the announcement, users must be 21 and older, duh, and have their mobile location services turned on and correctly enter your seat location and credit card information during the process. It wasn't until that line that I realized that this was inside the stadium. Yes. Oh no, yeah, this is in you have to know your seat and everything. Up until that point, I was just thinking it's a button that you press and they bring you a beer wherever you are. See, now that's what I would, that would be innovative. That yeah, would yeah. be despite that's the wave of it. You know yeah. the sad sad state of things in, Chris, in Brittany, sports. Edit this edit this whole part out. We're just going to steal this as our own idea. <laughs> uh, the the sad part about this is I was looking at $10 a beer, and it gets delivered to your home. Man, that's expensive. $10 a beer, and it gets delivered to a smaller area. Okay, that's not a bad deal if it's inside <laughs> yeah. of the stadium. Yeah, yeah. Well, like that's like stadium price beer, so you're kind exactly. of like, okay. It's like not a big upcharge, where it's like 50 cents for the beer if you buy it by the case. Eh, probably a dollar beer now. Um, at home, I was like, $10, $20, I can hire somebody at minimum wage to come and just bring me beers from the fridge. Well, I mean, I'm just saying, imagine a service that if you pressed a button on an app, wherever you are in the world, someone comes and brings you a beer. Huh. Well, Saudi Arabia. we do have uh, Prime now that ships uh, beer <laughs> in our area, so you can you can get it within two hours if you're like, you know what, I need a, need a case of beer. Instead of the Taco Bell Cantina that serves beer, the Amazon Prime service that serves beer. Yeah. Yeah. You can get a, a pizza from Whole Foods and a beer. <laughs> but more about that in the main show, uh, of which we need to start scooting towards. So we will uh, sign off here. I'd like to remind everyone that this is our news-only show, but we also do a weekly long-form show discussing the science and history around what you drink. If you like what you hear and want to support Have a Drink, please go to patreon.com slash have a drink show. And we will do it. We'll see you next Saturday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Once again, I'm Justin Frazier. I'm Christopher Walker. And I'm Casey Price. See you next time. Bye, guys. Bye. Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs>